Welcome to Tools for Liberty, a program designed to intrigue, to stir your nerves, and to fill your mind with critical thinking and adventure. Today we're going to be discussing a number of topics that are going to range from dogs, transformation, clowns, and beauty. And all these topics may not relate to one another, but we hope that you enjoy uh, this, this episode. I'm Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Dylan Proctor. And my name is Anthony Alegria. And behind me we have Chihuahua Charlie. And here is uh, up close Charlie. <laughs> well, let's get started with our first segment. All right, so as we've stated many times before, it's easier to bring hell to earth than it is to bring anything like heaven. Now, these last couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of really bad things happen in our world. We've seen a lot of manifestations of evil. In the last few episodes we've had here, we've talked a lot about evil and tragedy and the differences thereof. So now we're going to change gears a little bit and look at something a little bit more positive. You know, it is much easier to bring hell to earth than it is heaven. But what would it be like if we were able to summon heaven? What would that look like? This is how dogs would use a Ouija board. And when we're talking about summoning, I'm sure <laughs> with dogs summoning things, what would they summon? Um, I would guess food, bones, toys, and, of course, the people that they love, their masters, and those part of their pack. Yeah, it's so interesting to contrast what we think of with people summoning things. We always associate Ouija boards and seances things with, like, contacting demons, the undead, and all sorts of unholy creatures. But what if dogs were the ones in charge of seances and in charge of Ouija boards and things like that? You know, dogs are much more interested in things in life which, which bring them the results that they want. The, this meme is actually pretty funny with the, the dog summoning the, the goodest boy. But, but, you know, there's something really funny about this. You know, dogs are so, for lack of a better word, word, you know, the domestication of dogs is so funny, but they're so, like, visceral in their, their behavior. They have, like, sort of a core where they, they just love, love to be, be a good dog, and then, like, the wolf instinct may, may kick in, but... But dogs, if they had the ability to summon, I think Amanda's right, they'd be summoning toys, food, and the people they love. So, you know, could we ever replace that? Yeah, um, I think you've got an image up of a robot dog, which is very interesting that anybody would want to replace a dog because it's, at least that picture, it has kind of a very awkward, uh, it's not even like a full dog and wouldn't do, it doesn't do anything other than get pet. Yeah, what would it be like if we did replace dogs? What would this robot dog be like? Um, Oddity Central has a really interesting article about this, this robotic dog that's been made, but you know, could it ever really be a dog? Developed by Japanese Yukai Engineering Company, Kubo is a two-pound robotic pillow that sits on your lap and wags its fluffy tail when you pet it. You don't have to do much in lines of taking care of it, but then again, it doesn't do anything other than wag its tail. I wonder if it would beat Roomba in a fight. <laughs> yeah, this is how it starts. You know, you have... Robots imitating dogs, and then it turns into dogs imitating robots and dogs imitating pillows. So, you know, I can only imagine what it would be like if Charlie started to imitate a pillow. Uh, I think you can see what, what pillow imitation Charlie looks like there. Uh, it's, it's not the prettiest sight. Charlie doesn't look so good when he's doing that. No, it, it's, it's quite sad because um, that poor dog is, is way overweight and... Someone, I think, did treat it almost like, you know, as if it was a pillow or as if it wasn't a dog. And so they allowed it to get way too overweight and, and not take care of it, which is sad. Yeah, and, and if you're somebody who, who's listening to this through the podcast version, essentially what we've got is we've got a picture of what looks like a Roomba with a tail. If you took a Roomba to a taxidermist and said, put this inside some, <laughs> some fur, 
That's essentially what this pillow dog looks like with a tail. And then the, the Chihuahua picture we've got pretty much looks like a morbidly obese um, Charlie. So it would be what Charlie looks like if Charlie decided to eat a Roomba. And it is sad. And I'm not sure which is the most sad aspect of that, but it is sad. Practical transformation. All right, so moving on to a different topic. So we're in an era where we can really see the consequences of over-segmenting the different aspects of life out, especially within the church. You know, we want to say this is a spiritual thing, this is an emotional thing, and we really got to the point where stuff is fragmented out to the point where it's really ridiculous. It's really moved beyond critical thinking a little bit, and it's mitigated a lot of responsibility within the church. Here's a question we have received. Has life in the church become awkward in the way we talk about it? We end up hearing and saying things like, people must be saved to something. Because we don't have a large enough vocabulary to discuss the relevance of adhering to Christ's teachings beyond the theme of salvation. So this question may seem odd, um, depending on your background and how you're kind of coming to this question. You may have more questions of your own, so we're going to kind of recap what this question is getting to. What is the heart of the matter? You see, in the past, the church has often reduced its message, the gospel, to a moment of salvation, and salvation saved from sin. In response to this, the church recently has tried to expand its language to be more inclusive, more than just saved from, but also that you're saved to or for a purpose. And yet, there are still people who find that this language is still restrictive because it's still using the language of salvation and it is not depicting a life that is transformed beyond a moment or a temporary religious experience. Yeah, and, and really this was, we've sort of paraphrased the question a little bit, but it boils down to exactly what Amanda said. There's more to the, the life in the church than just a, a single moment where, where salvation begins, whether you use the language of initial salvation. Um, and sure, there's deep theologies behind this, and there's people who have, I mean, really understand the theology, but where rubber meets the road and where you get to people within the congregations or even on the, the outskirts of the church, people don't have, the language has yet to trickle down to people where they, they can think about stuff. So we really need to, to return to the, the language of transformation. This is something we need to exhume. It, it's been fairly well buried. A lot of people, they got the empathy thing down, but they, they don't have much in the way of transformation. So as the church, transformation is something that really should be relevant. And so we've got a list of five mediums of relevant transformation. We've got a list here that we can pull up for you to see. And now again, these are mediums. They're not the actual primary expression of chaos or suffering, anything like that. But there are mediums where, where transformation is necessary. And I just want to talk about these five areas because as the church, if we're to go out and be the hands and feet of the body of Christ and actually work with people to, to get them out of chaos, these are five areas that we can help people. And again, they are mediums, but let's just talk about these. So the first one is job. The second is health. The third is social interaction. The fourth is addiction. And the fifth is purpose. So what we see in these five sections, um, the first one we'll talk just jobs and what we mean by that, careers. It's the structure or the system that provides people with a reliable source of basic resources. So money so that they can buy food, lodging, um, various comforts, transportation, those kinds of things um, that are needed. And then often people can then find chaos in that situation. Yeah, they can. And it's important that we, we look at all five of these. So the second is health. 
And that's really both bodily health, mental health, but it's fairly self-explanatory. Whenever people have a problem with health, that's, that's obviously some form of, of chaos or, or suffering. So then we have social interactions. This could be uh, significant others, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whatever, uh, friends, family, and this idea of not being lonely, finding community and fellowship in the, the broader uh, sense of just one person. Um, and then obviously we can see where, where chaos can lead into that. Yeah, it's, it's basically not being in just abject loneliness. So the, the next one is, is addiction. And a lot of times we think of addiction in terms of being drug, alcohol, or some sort of substance abuse. But also addiction can be a lot of other things where you have replaced good, thing, healthy things in your life with really unhealthy things. Like, for instance, if, if you're somebody who you've replaced your social interactions with, people on the Internet, you only use social media to interact with other people, or you've got an abusive relationship that's really has something in your brain that, that gets triggered every time you interact with someone and it's replaced healthy interaction, you can be addicted to a lot of things. And if somebody has an addiction problem, that's something that is serious to deal with. And lastly, we said purpose, and this purpose is the productive meaning being sincerely needed. How people find value in their daily lives, um, just why that, kind of the big existential question, why am I here? Yeah, and interestingly, if people have issues in three of these areas, it's likely that issues will manifest in the other two. And the church, we can't always help in all areas, but we have to be very observant of these different areas. And the church can respond to these areas. Again, we can't segment our lives out and say, well, the church only speaks to spiritual matters and then these are physical or social or mental issues, but the church can speak to all of them. Different congregations may be equipped and have the resources, though, to maybe address only one or two or a couple, not all five, because of what they have at hand. However, if the church does help in some of the areas and can help, should help in some of these areas, and then allow people, because if you kind of help in some of the areas, then they are um, freed up to then help deal with the other areas that yeah. maybe the church we doesn't not, have. We may not be able to provide somebody with like a job, but we can help them say they're probably going to have other areas anyway if they're coming and their life is actually in chaos. You know, from my experience as a pastor, I've gone back and looked through the list of people I, I've known and the people I've, I've known to have problems, and I've used this as sort of a metric, and I really can't think of anybody who come to the church in a state of complete chaos that didn't have issues in three to five of these. Everybody I know that's generally okay in response to stuff okay, only has issues in like one or two of these areas. And it's really interesting how all this relates. So again, if somebody comes to you and they, they first mention to you, say, I have a job problem, well, well, use this as a checklist to say, well, how are these other areas in your life? And maybe you can't help in that one area, you can help in another area. Before we move on, I want to point out that earlier you said that these are mediums of relevant transformation. Yeah, these are not the primary expression of, of suffering and chaos. There are mediums. We never can let the medium get bigger than the primary expression. That's always a dangerous thing to do, and I just want to re-emphasize that. These are mediums where chaos and suffering can manifest, but when all of us, we're not all experts in things, but we may be the only rope that's thrown to people. We may be the, the only lifeboat that we can interact with people, but these are areas that we can practically use to examine people as we get there. It is October, and it's time for people to start getting excited about creepy things. Let's talk creepy stuff. Clowns. Why are they creepy? Yeah, so, so this is something which is really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of creepy stuff that comes out around this time of year. People always are getting worked up. They want to get in costume. They want to do all sorts of things, and, and clown is a great place to, to start talking about this topic. Right, and we've uh, kind of recently, or within the last few weeks, Stephen King's novel, It, has been put to film again. 
And um, also we can remember about this time last year, and I think it's actually popping up again in some places where people dressed like clowns and were creepily coming out of the woods and um, threatening other people. And so we kind of look at this and we're wondering, why are clowns creepy? Yeah, it's a really big question. I've had this discussion with some family members and just some, some different people I know, and some people are just completely convinced that clowns are creepy. And other people are like, well, no, they're, they were fun when I was a kid. They're fun at like hospitals and stuff. But the question is, has culture made clowns bad or has clowns by their existential nature <laughs> convinced culture that they're bad? Do we know is it the chicken before the egg or what, what relationship happens there, you know? Some people will hypothesize that it's horror movies and stuff like that that is giving clowns a bad image, but the real question for us is is what what is the deal with clowns? Are they they actually bad or, or not? What's the deal with them? An article titled Psychology Behind Why Clowns Creep Us from Jester enlightens us. Clown-like characters have been around for thousands of years. Historically, jesters and clowns have been a vehicle for satire and poking fun at powerful people. Shakespeare introduced the term clown and modern clowns have not changed much in the last 150 years. A study was conducted with 1,341 volunteers ranging in, ranging in ages from 18 to 77 to, to participate in a survey. What they found was interesting. The weird traits of clowns alone do not make them creepy, but when you add all of the factors together, you get a creepy outcome. It is the inherent ambiguity surrounding clowns that make them creepy. They seem happy, but are they really? They're mischievous, which puts people constantly on guard. People interacting with a clown during one of his routines never know if they are going to get a pie in the face or be the victim of some other humiliating prank. The highly unusual physical characteristics of the clown, the wig, the big red nose, the makeup, the odd clothing, only magnify the uncertainty of what the clown might do next. I think like when we're saying creepy, there's something disturbing about the clown. Um, when we kind Very of disturbing. Yes. When we brought up this topic, I was reminded there is a person that um, I think I'm still Facebook friends that is a clown, and that's what this person does in retirement, kind of as their hobby and their profession and outreach even. Um, and it, it is there's something still even disturbing. Like it's a, he's a nice guy, and we're not saying clowns are all clowns are bad people, but there's just something disturbing about them that when we see them, there's something hidden, something mysterious, and not not in the intriguing, fun way, but in the potentially scary way. Yeah, I think there is something like potentially scary about it, and you know, it's their behavior. Like whether it be like breaking the fourth wall, like you can't tell are they acting, are they in the middle of a skit, or are they going to be talking to you? Like that's something that I thinks uneasy. Just the unbe. It's, it's unpredictable whether they're, again, they're in character or whether they're out of character. That's something that's weird. And then you see, like, the facial features. Like, it's, it's all there. It's the, the naturally occurring facial features, but they're, they're exaggerated just outside the parameters of what is natural. So it's some, somewhat, you know, paranormal in the sense that they're, they're enlarged or they're, they're slightly grotesque in one way or another. So all of this, while it may not be too disturbing by itself, I think we have, can have resolution in saying when you put it all together, they actually are creepy. So with that, clowns are what they are. Beauty in the New Testament. All right, so moving to a holier topic than clowns. So let's talk again about beauty. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Plato. We've been talking about really some of the, the Greek philosophers there with Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. We're going to be coming back to, to Socrates here in a little while. But... For today, let's just talk a little bit about beauty. So in the past, we've defined beauty as interpretation of truth. And that's something really interesting. So just to clarify, 
the entire definition that we're using is those three words, interpretation of truth. I noticed aesthetics aren't mentioned in there. Yeah, what is that? aesthetics is something which is really secondary. A lot of people look at beauty and they, they go for the aesthetics first. But what is so interesting is that the great artists throughout history, when they have pursued truth as the, the primary intention of their, their artistic endeavors, and they pursued excellence along the path, Great aesthetics have come as just a natural byproduct of pursuing truth and pursuing excellence. So aesthetics in and of itself are just a byproduct of an excellent interpretation of truth. You know, not all interpretations of truth are equal. Some are really bad. Some are really good. So as we're talking about truth, let's go to the Gospels, and let's specifically go to the Gospel of John. Now initially, if you're familiar with Scripture and someone talks about truth, you may go to the passage in chapter 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But even before we go there, let's talk about John 4:22, where Jesus talks about true worship being in the Spirit and truth. All right, so this is really bizarre, because you would not think of worship being done in the form of Spirit and truth if people ask what worship is. You know, I'm convinced if you go to, to a university and ask students in the worship art programs what worship means, you'll, you'll get a million different answers and probably uh, minimal consistency. I know that's how it was when I was there. But uh, even with people in practice, what, is, what does worship mean? And for Jesus to say it, it happens, you know, through the lenses of spirit and truth or through the, through the existence of spirit and truth, you know, what, is, what in the world does this mean? So to figure out what this means, let's go back to the Greek language. Let's go back to to the old text of, of John and look here in chapter 4 and see what he's saying. Now let's go ahead and begin by saying in chapter 4 Jesus is talking to the, the woman at the well. This is the Samaritan woman. Samaritans are not really Jews, they're not really Gentiles, they're kind of hated by everybody for being the mix between. And when Jesus goes and deals with her, the word that is used when he says spirit and truth is the word alethos, or it's a variation thereof, but it's sort of in its root form the, the word alethos, which means in Greek reliable. Now this is a very interesting find when we go and we discover this because the Gospel of John, it, it sort of suggests in its logic that the way we get to the truth is through accepting the word and the testimony of Christ. In other words, we accept the word, capital W, the Logos. We accept the transformation from chaos and that gives us access to that which is reliable. Now you want to talk about a really very different thinking. If we, we change just the language and go back to the definition of these ancient concepts, you know, Transformation out of chaos gives us access to the reliable. That's how we worship. We worship by pursuing the reliable, and that's a very interesting thing. And so we kind of we said that beauty is um, the interpretation of truth, and we may seem like beauty and truth seem opposites because we hear this phrase a lot that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and so it makes beauty to be out something that is changeable, malleable. That um, you know it could be same, or it's not the same from one person to the next. That they can kind of make it there on their perception. And so again, we have to go back to the definition that we're talking about and we're using in this conversation. And truth itself is not malleable or changeable from one person to the next. Again, to use that Greek word, it's reliable. It is something that is consistent throughout from the beginning of time till the end of time. Truth will always be truth. And then as we go from this, as we're discovering, as we're learning, as we're using critical thinking to find real truth and then beauty to, to interpret it, to in express it to others, it's in those things and in that language and in that movement that we're finding transformation, that God's reliable um, grace is found and that we can find transformation, again, not just in spiritual matters, not just kind of saved from sins, that yes, that does happen, 
but it also can be found in our physical lives, our mental lives, our social lives. Our whole being is wrapped up in this reliable truth that is consistent throughout every aspect of our lives. Yeah, and again, Amanda's right. So many people want to have this phrase, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I think that's probably one of the worst things to be introduced into our, our logic because, you know, it's, it's just it's ridiculous because it suggests that truth itself is relative. It suggests that everything's relative when you say that. You know, truth, if we go to the Greek, it is that which is reliable. That's very different than something being subjective. It's saying that truth itself is very objective. It doesn't change. It's not situational ethics. It's not situational morality. Truth itself is not, you know, dependent on the one viewing it. But the one viewing it is challenged to interpret that which is fixed, that which is reliable, that which isn't moving. And that's a very different concept than what a lot of us have, have been taught when it comes to understanding beauty and understanding whether it be art or whether it be worship within the, the confines of the church. But in our life, I want us to really be challenged to think of beauty as the interpretation of truth, and truth to be that which is reliable. To wrap all this up, beauty is to seek truth. Truth is, by ancient de definition, that which is reliable. The Logos, or the Word, transforms things out of chaos. And when we are transformed out of chaos, we have access to that which is reliable. Recap. All right, so let's wrap up our program today. So in our kind of more fun topics, we talked about dogs being good, wanting to summon to bring um, out things that are good and bring joy and life and blessing. And clowns, not so much. Um, again, they might be good people, but there is something off kilter, something yeah, disturbing we're, about we're them. We're not going to... No, no damage or harm to anyone who is a clown, but there's something which is just suspiciously peculiar about that. It, it does put one on edge. When, when your, your evolutionary instincts of, of suspicion kick in when, when one has that. It's a very, very odd thing, to say the least. But moving on to our other topics, beauty is the interpretation of truth. Truth is not relative. Truth is not fickle, and it doesn't change based on the situation, but instead truth is reliable. And definitionally, truth is that which is reliable. You can interchange truth and, and reliable with one another when you look at, at the ancient text. So transformation out of chaos gives us access to that which is reliable. This is practically relevant. It's not something that we segment off and say, oh, when we talk about worshiping and truth, that only happens on a few days of the week or it happens at a certain area. No, this is something that we're to do all throughout life, to be people who pursue to move out of chaos, to move towards order, and to move towards the truth, to move towards that which is reliable. And especially if we're people who live under the jurisdiction of the kingdom of God, this is something we should hold every day in our lives. Here are five, five areas of relevant transformation we discussed today. Jobs, health, social interactions, addiction, and purpose. We hope that you have enjoyed this video today and all the different topics, the fun ones, the serious ones, all of them um, that we discussed. And we hope that uh, this will be something that speaks blessing, that speaks life into your lives um, and helps inspire you to think critically. All right. And if you enjoyed this program, I ask that you please follow us. Please share this. This is the biggest thing you can do if you'd like to support us is just share the video, share the content, share the podcast, whatever medium you're listening to it through. Please share it, either by word or mouth. It doesn't take much on Facebook to share the video. It doesn't take too much to, to copy the link and send to some other people. Uh, but please share our, our content, and that will help us out tremendously. And on that note, I hope you have a blessed day.